cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but one. Well spoken, good Caesar. But now I wish to speak of fateful leaks, which having leaked, portend our bloody doom. But first vouchsafe upon the gods of Rome that no man here will leak this talk of leaks. For leaks are like the gash of lion's claws, which drizzle blood upon the capital. Nay, each leak is more like an adder's mouth, leaking leaks of poison upon the state. Leaky, leak, 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 leaky, leaky. Good Cassius, when Caesar doth talk of leaks, tis mad, like bat poop in the night air. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in our leaks, that we are fake and sad. Soft now, friend, for our liege doth speak again. Gaius Priebus, fat men stand before me. I command all Rome to eat fruits and nuts. Bring the oil of olive and vegetable. Let the legume supplant the ear of pig. Tis the Mediterranean diet. Give it that name. Give it all the best names. Surely such rude edicts are crazy talk and do obstruct the justice of our guts. I will leak this anon to all tribunes, but now speak hands for me. <gasps> Blood comes from my eyes, my mouth, my... Wherever the traitor Comius hath wreaked revenge, farewell. All that was huge and amazing, to total losers I commend this life. <sighs> he is dead. You totally leaked that. And now the man who plagiarized his Nobel acceptance speech from Jonathan Livingston Siegel... Colin McEnroe. There's a lot of really good stuff in Jonathan Livingston Siegel. So yes, that was a version of Julius Caesar, and we will be talking about other versions, or specifically an other version of Julius Caesar, and we'll be talking about much more than that. Who will we be talking with about it, if I got all those prepositions correctly, with Tanisha Dugan, a producing associate at Theatre Works here in Hartford, James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College. This is The Nose. Uh, later on in the show, we're going to talk indeed about Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, which, <laughs> which, which well, anyway, he appeared not to be less than startlingly original. Uh, we'll be talking about Alex Jones appearing on television with uh, Megyn Kelly. Uh, if there's time, we'll also talk about uh, just Jeff Bezos uh, and the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon and the interrupting of Kamala Harris, uh, U.S. Senator at the, in the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. Not, not just the questioning of Jeff Sessions, but I might add also during their questioning of Rod Rosenstein. The exact same two people interrupted her. So, um, well, I will try not to interrupt anybody, uh, but we're going to begin with, in fact, the story of the public theater, uh, which every year stages uh, these uh, Shakespeare in the Park productions at the Delacorte Theater. They are much sought after. You have to wait in line a really long time, and you still might not even get the wonderful free tickets. Uh, but this time they decided, I think probably most people know this story by now, but they, they decided on Julius Caesar. That decision was made right after the election. Uh, they decided to set it in modern dress. Um, they decided to make it, you know, pretty on the nose, too. I mean, they actually did add three words to, the, to Shakespeare's words. They cut about a quarter of Shakespeare's words, as one tends to do, and added three words that really were just a direct reference to, uh, to Donald Trump. It was hard to miss some of the other parallels. And then some of the other parallels are just there. I mean, 
One has a wife named Calpurnia. The other has a wife named Melania. I mean, you know, it's just not that far apart. Um, so this is causing a lot of trouble. And then and some underwriters have withdrawn uh, their support. Uh, and uh, a hornet's nest was stirred up by Fox News. But so, um, well, Irene, let's start with the English professor here. I mean, obviously, I mean, this whole argument has gone through an iteration or two already. And certainly w- what has come back is, of course, the argument that this this play isn't about the joys of killing your dictator. It's about the opposite. It's about the opposite, and it's an interpretation, as people always do when they put on any play. They do an interpretation. So um, I think it's the idea, The idea. well, I mean, you know, the idea of Donald Trump getting killed on stage that offended a lot of people. And so without knowing anything about the, the play, they overreacted, or they, re, you know, they reacted and criticized and it's um, I mean I, I, I guess I have a relatively a, a view that <clears throat> that represents a view of um, <clears throat> most people in the academic world and the world beyond the world of theater goers which is that it's outrageous well so yeah James obviously all of us are familiar with the argument that yes this is a very interesting play to stage at times like this a version of it was done uh, and actually toured around a bit last year by another prestigious director that where Caesar was black and clearly a stand-in for President Obama um, that really this is a meditation on the disorderly transfer of power and what happens I mean Caesar dies in the middle of the play he's not even around for most of it this is kind of about be careful what you kill for um, but I just wonder whether we even have the capacity to have that conversation. I mean, it seems like the, the, the fireworks just go off way before you can even talk about something like that. Well, the question is where the fireworks come from, too. There's kind of like an – it's almost like a sort of hyper-exploitation atmosphere now that I haven't actually read anybody who's written something cogent saying that this was a bad thing to do or that somehow this interpretation or this presentation of the play – was bad. It's something that is like a hook in an atmosphere of monstrous insecurity amongst people in power. And I think that there's also the opportunity to make a lot of money by using it for fundraising, for getting wildly excited about something that really, I mean, theater is a provocation. Real theater is daily a provocation. It may vary from performance to performance. Um, it, it's something that is an expression live, person to person, that in a play that is political in content, it's certainly going to have an effect. And it, it, it should. I mean, you should have the discussion. But in, somehow, in, in, in the current atmosphere, it's almost like a product that's been introduced that is a provocation to people who are extremely insecure. And that insecurity expresses itself in all sorts of toxic ways. I mean, it it actually causes fear. You know, people are fearful that is somebody going to go crazy about this or is this going to be something that somebody is going to get killed over? Um, And actually, that's the focus of the play is that somebody's getting killed for nothing uh, that that is totally in opposition to what is actually going on. And, And that's the focus of the play is to have that discussion and to actually engage in real sort of political discourse that could actually untangle some of the nonsense that's going on now. Right. I, I mean, like you, Mr. Hammond. Yeah. <laughs> I that was do. Beautifully ex- expressed. Yeah. Beautifully yeah. expressed. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, yes, I mean, you know, if there's a uh, this play could be interpreted a lot of ways. But if there's sort of kind of an inescapable part of it, it it's sort of just because your leader is kind of a power grabbing jerk that mm-hmm. if you kill him, that's you're going down the wrong road. So 
Tanisha, we have to talk about sort of the theater end of this because this is, might be one of these things where nobody really gets hurt that bad except maybe our our commitment to Western civilization. You know, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The public, exactly. the public is a problem in the sense that you know the public theater has lost some sponsors, but it's a pretty nice problem to have. This is you work at a nonprofit theater. This is the healthiest nonprofit theater in America. They get $3 million a year for Hamilton for as long as Hamilton stays on Broadway. So they're probably going to be okay. They, I mean, before they even staged a play, they get $3 million a year. Um, and, I mean, I th- I'm sure donations are pouring in right now from people who are basically feeling more or less the way James just articulated, that they want theater to be provocative. I'm sure they're getting a little of both. I think they're probably getting a substantial bump in their in their donors. And to your point, because they are the public, um, I think their, their reception of those donations is going to be different than a, a smaller company doing similar kinds of work. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the daily provocation, and, and I, I was lucky enough, uh, to listen to Oscar's uh, opening night speech, which is funny. Very often, it's not very often that my 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 day job sort of feeds the stuff that we're talking about on the nose. But we've been sharing lots of emails about this, um, and and he indicated that no matter what, this is what they do. That they are in the business of creating this discourse amongst different voices and different people, and they're going to do it no matter what. And I think it's interesting that. You know, Bank of America and what is it, American Airlines Delta. or mm-hmm. Delta, Delta yeah. pulled without actually having seen right. the production. Mm-hmm. Um, that it wasn't that that there was a representative that saw it and thought, "Oh my gosh, this is so offensive to the body politic. We cannot support this." It was just the sheer idea that a representation of Trump was being uh, uh, exploited in in the play, uh, and that makes me wonder because. In our city itself, we've seen lots of productions that have used Trump in some way, shape, or fashion um, to engender this kind of discourse. And it's been happening across the country since he was elected. So I'm curious if a corporation like Bank of America that funds most nonprofit organizations is truly standing behind that that action. And, and a corporation that was bailed out to a huge degree by the taxpayers and who also fleeced its own customers. <laughs> <laughs> but and I and it's so it's I it's I think it's interesting because it's like the idea of the idea of offense is offensive, you know, and and but and so that's true. But I also think it's somehow the idea of interpretation or the idea of depth and the idea of texture in a in a performance is is offensive to certain people. You know, it's it seems like there's this you're not supposed to really talk about stuff. You're not supposed yeah. to really explore stuff in some in its in nuance. You're not you know nuance is 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 suspect. You know, so yeah, they're 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 uh, they're they're objecting to the to the way it looks definitely like people might be offended so therefore we can't uh, we can't support it but i feel like there's also this more insidious thing of they're objecting to the idea of even you know and look, yet i'm just look. curious if bank of america can follow through on this precedent because they literally fund so many nonprofits that right. having done exactly. this to the public are they now going yeah. to follow through and anytime anyone makes any comment about let's just say trump specifically 
they will then pull their funding. It just seems outrageous and un. Well, this got yeah. this got yeah. launched in a certain way, right? I mean, Fox and Friends launched it, I think, and Fox News launched it with a very kind of pretty inflammatory mm-hmm. headline. They didn't even mention Julius Caesar in the headline. I think it just said Trump is killed on stage in <laughs> New York theater d- drama or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was kind of like what? What? Who, who is what? Um, well, isn't that the kind of thing you do when your ratings are in the toilet? You look for something that that will be a hook. Yes, and you don't want to report on the news that's happening. So just for the sake of argument, and so we're not just one unified choir, I mean, let me push back on this a little bit or at least sort of present it a different way. Because mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this, too, because I'm, I've been last – last 24 hours or so, I've been chasing around this story, which I still haven't quite managed to get a grip on. And I don't want to say too much about it because I don't have a grip on it. But at one of Connecticut's better-known churches, uh, the pastor is leaving and one of the – Explanations that is being offered is that that he, his, some of his rhetoric about the current political situation was maybe a little too fiery and and on the nose about our current political situation. And there are people sitting out in the pews and they can't handle that. I'm not sure that that's quite true, and that's why I'm not going into details right now. But and you're not going to tell us which no, way no, no. his politics. Oh no, <laughs> they would be anti-Trump politics. Okay, okay. So, and and I do think that you know we should at least acknowledge that there are people living in different realities here. So there are an awful lot of us who live in a reality where this is really kind of an emergency. Somebody wildly wildly inappropriate and unqualified has been elected president. His sensibilities are very, very disturbing. He doesn't seem to be doing the job very well. He's not even staffing the, the federal government in a way that could allow it to run. And just every day is one strange misfire after another, coupled with a pretty, uh, you know, dark and, and disturbing possible corruption Russian influence narrative. There's a special counsel. This is, you know, as bad as things can get in a democracy like ours. So that's one world. And then but there's another people who sit in the world who sit in a world where that guy's the president. Mm-hmm. This is America. He won an election. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the big emergency? Mm-hmm. Um, or why does this have to be a bigger emergency than other stuff that I didn't like? Mm-hmm. You know? and, and so those people, they do look at stuff like this and say, well, really? Like I just, you know, and, and I, I totally agree that art has to be provocative. But I wonder if Bank of America and some of these other places are thinking, well, you know, there's like a whole bunch of other people who just don't see it that way. They just don't. We don't talk to them that much, but they exist. Well, I th- and I know. I mean, I think it's. I, I, I would like to understand. In a way, I would like to understand them more. I mean, c- but I feel like it, it's hard to think of arguments that they would that they could accept. But I mean, if we supposedly stand for democracy, democracy is about deliberation. Democracy is about people with different perspectives coming together and discussing. But it's the thing that bothers me about those people is they they don't that you know they don't really believe in democracy. They don't believe in listening to the other side. Do they? Well, it's I, the deliberation, I think, that is that is really the, the sort of hook in it all. Um, and Bank of America could have responded by, and everybody knows how much I love about talkbacks, love a talkback, but I think Bank of America could have responded by saying, this is an opportunity to lift the voices of those who feel as if this is the office of the president and we must respect it. And so let's have a conversation about that. And the truth of the matter is the public is the best at having those kinds of forms, having those kinds of conversations. If Bank of America truly was having a a thoughtful uh, resistance to the work that they saw on the stage, that to me seems like the responsible, deliberate way Mm -hmm. of having a conversation um, across the lines because that's the purpose of of the art form. Well, I, I, I think that that's like, – I mean you're getting to the heart of the nature of what Delta and Bank of America did was essentially reactive. 
And <clears throat> if you're reactive to something and you're, uh, you're, you're laying on it a certain identity and saying, okay, that's it, I'm not paying for this anymore, and this is how we're, we're going to deal with it. But any thoughtful look at their own structure for whatever bad deeds and good deeds they may have done over the years, the fact is that they have customers who are interested in the very dialogue you're talking about. And so how about if you opened up a website and said, okay, I'm, we're going to fund this, but clearly there's a discussion to be had about this. And you're going to get a lot of angry comments mm -hmm. and all kinds of sturm und drang on the, on the website. But you actually then send a message that you want to have the conversation and that it's not just about a reactive response that is based on your fear that that then is picked up by other people and then they're, they're thinking, well, you know, what is your sincerity about supporting all of these small nonprofits, for example? I mean, where's the consistency there? It, though that is really hard to do. I mean, I have to say that it's so much easier to see other people's blind spots than it is to see one's own, yes. you know? And so to, to be able to say, I really want, you know, even when I say I really want to know how they feel, do I really? Do I have an emotional response? Well, the minute they say something, I want to argue against it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we do have that, and that's the name. I mean, you know, there's a whole industry of um, rhetoric, rhetorical analysis, and saying like, what goes into, you know, what are the warrants that go into that come into play in people's, uh, you know, argumentation and their sort of supposedly rational argumentation, and you know, everything that we call rational is in fact informed by all these emotional things that go back to our childhood, you know, and it's really hard to change people's minds in any way or to have our minds changed at all. So there is all that, but but that's what art is about, you know. Okay. I mean, it, it sort of, and it reminds me of when Laura Bush was doing that thing in, on poetry in the White House, and she said, well, let's just keep the politics out of it. Let's right. bring the poets, right. but keep the politics out of it. But, the you know, the answer was you can't keep the the politics out of poetry or art, it's impossible. And so you have to have that. You can't even but bring the Golden off. State Warriors to the White House and keep the politics out <laughs> but, of it. But you can have a moderated discussion, I think, that, that if you really yeah. commit yourself to actually fostering a discussion, let's say Bank of America or Delta opened up a website for this, hired some really good uh, moderators who would actually – be involved in the discussion. It might be a lesson about the possibilities about how you can deal with this because if you're – ask anyone who deals with dispute resolution. I mean everybody's screaming at each other at the beginning. But then you say, OK, well, now everybody's exhausted from screaming at each other. Now let's listen. just <laughs> listen and, and see is there something we can come to that will take your emotional temperature down and make you feel like you can live again. And, and isn't that what you've devoted your life to, Colin? Well, is trying to do that? <laughs> sort of. And I, do, I will say we have to take a break so we can get some of these – the topics squeezed in here. But I, I will say that, for example, one thing that we do here in WNPR is the Wheelhouse, which is a political roundtable on Wednesday mornings. And one thing that I've been kind of insistent about is that whenever possible, somebody with a fairly conservative point of view be on there. And what I've discovered is that public radio listeners hate that, <laughs> or a certain percentage of them, not all of them. But, you know, that I spend a lot of my late Wednesday morning answering <laughs> emails from people <laughs> saying, how can you possibly allow that person to come on and say that? And, and but, it, you know, as James says, it, it is a moderated discussion. It's not as though we simply allow people to say that and then we don't say anything back or, you know, it's a conversation. So I, I, when you say blind spots, I'm nodding because I think we all do have them. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. We might even talk about one of those blind spots.
All right, we're back. I don't know how many of these topics we're going to be able to squeeze into this uh, segment, uh, but we'll do a few. I don't know. Jonathan's got Bob Dylan first, so we'll do Bob Dylan first. So uh, as everybody knows, uh, uh, Bob Dylan got the Nobel Prize in Literature. That was a whole other nose episode. Uh, And then during his official uh, lecture recorded on June 4th, uh, Bob Dylan, after having sort of hemmed and hawed about whether he was even going to show up to get this thing, uh, he described the influence uh, on him of three literary works from his childhood, The Odyssey, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, isn't the one, the one that Trump claims? I think that's a Trump. That's like the only Trump book Trump ever really talks about. And Moby, Di- oh, and Moby Dick. Um, soon after that, writer Ben Greenman noted that in his lecture, Dylan seemed to have um, invented a quote from Moby Dick uh, and that it also appeared as though he had relied rather heavily uh, from phrases on the website Spark, Spark Notes, which is the like, like Cliff Notes. Uh, if you're a little bit older, uh, it's one of those things that kind of helps you write your paper. Irene can tell you all about Spark Notes probably. <laughs> Something that you're on the lookout for. Well, yeah, I think we should start with the teacher first. <laughs> so so here's this like incredibly hallmark speech. I mean, most of us are not going to get to accept Nobel Prizes for literature, no matter how much we think we deserve them. I'm appalled. I, you know, I have to say I'm appalled. You know, if you if you're getting the Nobel Prize for you know, wouldn't you try to write a, an original lecture that was based on real things that you'd really notice in the world? I mean, I, I just think it's completely appalling. And wouldn't but, you think wouldn't you think though, and from a practical point of view, that is he so disconnected from the cyber universe that he doesn't realize how rapidly people can search this stuff, oh, and but how he totally quickly. knows. I mean, he, if yeah. he knows, then 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 it's just a sort of dismissive slap, you know. So, but one of the notable thing is they wouldn't give him the check till he did this, right? right. They were holding <laughs> the check. It's like, well, we have this check here for you. <laughs> That's why he did it. Well, <laughs> give me that check. So let, let's hear a little clip of that of this speech, uh, and I think uh, we can talk a little bit about sort of what's in there and what isn't. Moby Dick is a seafaring tale. One of the men, the narrator, says, call me Ishmael. Somebody asks him where he's from. He says, it's not down on any map. True places never are. Stubb gives no significance to anything. Says everything is predestined. Ishmael's been on a sailing ship his entire life. Calls the sailing ships he has Harvard and Yale. He keeps his distance from people. A typhoon hits the Pequod. Captain Ahab thinks it's a good omen. Stubbuck thinks it's a bad omen. Considers killing Ahab. As soon as the storm ends, a crew member falls from the ship's mast and drowns, foreshadowing what's to come. A Quaker pacifist priest, who is actually a bloodthirsty businessman, tells Flask, some men who receive injuries are led to God. Others are led to bitterness. So among the things you might have heard in there is the the line Stubb gives no significance to anything. Spark Notes says Stubb refusing to assign too much significance to anything. <laughs> um, you might have heard in the quick clip a Quaker pacifist priest who is actually a bloodthirsty businessman. Spark Notes says a bloodthirsty, unusual for Quakers who are normally pacifists. Um, so he did do some rewarding. All right. You know. So here's the first question. Yeah. Who is playing the piano? Yeah, I was just <laughs> thinking that too. <laughs> I don't know. I, I could be Steve Metcalf because he's really good at that. Uh, oh, um, my goodness. I was just thinking that, that was a dead giveaway about what's going on here. <laughs> so, so but So, Tanisha, you think he did it on purpose? I absolutely think he did it on purpose. And it's so funny listening to him. I'm like, he sounds like an... 
60-year-old black ex-jazz player. So I've got this piano playing in the back and this very ridiculous, like I feel like I'm, I'm listening to a sketch about what, uh, you know, a... a, a poetry slam would feel like. So you mean, so he's sort of goofing on the whole thing, like, oh, I won the Nobel Prize, whatever. I you know, think so, just... and I mean, that's what his songwriting has been. His songwriting has always been about, you know, a certain level of borrowing from other other places, other writers. I don't think it would be him if he didn't do this. I Maybe mean, not to this degree. So we might be uh, kind of but... divided on this. And, uh, James, where do, you, do you think he is a, a, doing something like that or possibly even trolling or just kind of mocking the, the august nature of the Nobels by doing this? Well, I, I think that the mocking the Nobel is a, is, is, is a, I don't know, I had a suspicion about that myself when he was first, you know, like, like being so difficult about actually accepting it, you know. And so, I mean, how churlish do you have to be, really, to actually be, if you, if you find it upsetting that you've been nominated or there's a political <laughs> feeling you have about it, well, come out and say it. And he, since he didn't, and then he does this, it's like um, it's it's almost trolling. It, it, it the, the 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 piano in the background, first of all, to me, <laughs> conveys that it's a performance, not you know, it's not a sincere speech. Am I alone in thinking that? I mean, <laughs> it's <laughs> I it, it just and, and it has a kind of falseness to it. And well, I, I wonder if he feels that. And not not to play armchair psychologist, but I do wonder if he feels as if this is such a a, a an eminent and, and and huge award that he's not quite the right guy for it. And but, so, he's but can't you articulate that. that if you're such a songwriter yes. and you're such a? I, he should have. I, I he really actually thought. I don't think modesty entered into this, or even any sort of sense of scale <laughs> entered into this. Although I, I'm so glad that you're saying what you're saying, uh, and I was hoping like more people would do that so that I could take the other side <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a little bit closer to Irene than I am and James than I am to you on this. Although maybe both things are possible, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so let me just offer that at the risk of peeing down both legs, um, that maybe it's on the one hand, I do feel like this guy's work, although brilliant and inspired, it's brilliant and inspired kind of at the level of collage as opposed to depth. Absolutely. Like what he does is pull, like just because you can say Shakespeare, he's in the alley with his pointed shoes and his bells, that's a great line, right. particularly in the context of a song about Memphis. Right, mm -hmm. right. doesn't mean you really could give a 40-minute lecture about Julius Caesar. It just <laughs> means that you have this ability really, you know, to take things out of context and use them differently. God, it's the it's what's that? Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. Don't get us started. I won't go. That's that's So um, that's the collage maker's yeah. talent, and he's a fabulous at it. Mm -hmm. So, but he he's also probably kind of a slightly lazy and disorganized person. This strikes me as this thing where, like, he waited to the last minute. You realize he didn't have that much command over Moby Dick, where he could really talk his way through it, just kind of spitting it out. So he did what everybody else does. <laughs> Got yeah, on the it's internet. It's not like yeah. the, Nobel, the Nobel Prize was like, you must talk about Moby Dick. So it's sort of yeah, like yeah. odd in the sense right. that like... If so he could at fact, least yeah. have, have directly quoted Wikipedia more right. explicitly, you know, so that people would find it right. more easily and then it would be, have been more of a, an, a, an artistic creation. He could have talked about Moby, you know, instead <laughs> <laughs> of Moby Dick and he probably knows a lot more about Moby. I think, I think what you're talking about really is couldn't he be more honest, really? Couldn't mm -hmm. he be more real mm -hmm. and not real. be 
really a caricature in this context. And yes. that was what was disappointing to me. Because that's what we loved about I mean, yeah, like, I memorized a lot of his songs and sang them on my guitar and everything, yeah, you know? Sure. And because he was real, he seemed yeah, exactly. re- like a genuine yeah. s- critique of everything. Yeah. And so now he's, it's, it's so, like, he's crumbled into this cynicist, cynicist, cynical... If we could actually get you sometime to sing a Dylan song, <laughs> accompany yourself on a guitar. We need to sort of put out like a nose album, album, oh, album, yes, album or something like that. You know, that's and that certainly would have to. I mean, I think everybody in Radioland right now. Oh, is saying, I've well, got has some to have, covers. I I'd love to do. Has to have Irene <laughs> Bullis doing. What would be your song if you did it? What do you feel you really are oh, able to nail? A lot of the, you know. Go away from my window. It's okay. the first one that comes to mind. <laughs> All right, so that's something. <laughs> that's not the title. That's of a it. reason to go on living. Uh, <laughs> is that that might happen someday? All right, we have to switch gears Christmas. really fastly here. We're, like we're uh, times are wasting. So as I alluded to before, Alex Jones, who is, I think we can all agree, we may not all agree on how this plays out, but we can all agree that Alex Jones is a thing that lives under a rock uh, and crawls out occasionally to say things that are just simply not true and kind of destructive of people's lives at times. So he's one of the people who pushed, for example, the notion that there was a sex ring operating out of a a pizza cafe in in D.C. I mean, that was not simply a harmless rumor. Some bad things happen as a result of this. He has uh, obviously advanced the idea that Sandy Hook was a Sandy Hook was a hoax perpetrated by actors. When again, people have been harassed and tormented uh, as a result uh, of that. He's obviously said that 9/11 was an inside job. A lot of these things are hurtful, uh, but he's also acquired a certain amount of influence. He has millions of fans. Uh, one of his reporters now has a, at least temporary White House press uh, pass access to the briefing room, uh, and on a Sunday night he will be interrogated uh, by <laughs> Megyn Kelly. Uh, or or not interrogated. We don't know yet, really. But so anyway, yeah, he's going to be questioned. And James, so even I mean, it's hard to talk about this because like everything else these days, it's kind of falling apart and unraveling. You know, even as I speak, even as I was talking about Donald Trump in the previous episode, I think he's tearing apart our relationship with Cuba, like simultaneously <laughs> with anything I was saying about him. And si- similarly, all kinds of subplots are emerging. Jones apparently recorded all the phone calls that led up to this interview. He re- he has his own. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like some sort of Machiavellian <laughs> unraveling that's happening with everybody having their angle. And and you imagine probably that Megyn Kelly probably has this expensive public relations outfit at her beck and call because she's just starting out with NBC. And NBC is like half the sort of, you know, like they, they, they're so excited about all the public attention. But the question is, where is it going to go? And um, I mean, I, I think, Megyn Kelly, to me, is not a person who's actually proved herself, except in a sort of, I I mean, she survived kind of thing, a very toxic environment. But to me, she hasn't proved herself intellectually as a person with a drive for, say, truth. Or, like, I could see somebody saying, well, they're going to interview Alex Jones and this this is going to be a real interview. Somebody who has the intellectual uh, uh, position to take that can actually have a conversation which is not demeaning but actually reveals the true person, who, whatever that might be. I mean, I happen to think Alex Jones, based on everything I see about him and read about him, I think he's a monstrously insecure person who, who, who lives by spreading his insecurity to others. It's a trend. Is insecure, you know, it's interesting that you keep <laughs> saying insecure, you know, describing these people as insecure because they, when they have a lot, so much power, is right. it, it, you know, 
it doesn't does it matter that he's insecure if he's so yes, I toxic? do. Because I think it does matter because it creates fear. Yeah. Oh, you mean right? So that the source of it is his insecurity, but the result of it is fear in other people. Exactly. Maybe? Yeah. Yes. So, Tanisha, I mean, is there a, uh, there a case is being made? There is obviously a case to be made for simply not doing this. That it's you know that he's existed in some you know slightly dark and dank corner, uh, pulling him into Sunday night prime time uh, on uh, on a prime time a major network, giving him that kind of exposure just allows him to reach that many more people. Is that a good enough argument to not? I should add also some of the Sandy Hook parents are very troubled by this. They've even filed a legal action. Is that an argument not to do this? Uh, I don't know if it's an argument not to do it, but it, it is the trendy thing to to pull out these kinds of people, i.e., you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, to have these kind of interviews, to watch them say outrageous things, and to watch somebody else ask them questions about the outrageous things that they've said in the past. Uh, I actually really dug uh, Margaret Sullivan's piece, and I actually think that she's onto something that perhaps you know the interview that Megan has done is really the starting point to push us towards a greater truth about the these kinds of men because i think there's a story that is actually bigger than then Alex Jones and it includes Milo and it can include um our president if if that is what the story ultimately is um, but but I think I I using these interviews as a starting place to have a conversation about these kinds of men, about the kinds of uh, things that they are allowed to say, um, there's a lot of meat for a lot of story in there. Why are we interested in hearing those things? Because like, truly, there's an appetite to hear it. Otherwise, it wouldn't continue to be put on television. Um, why, why are they as successful as they are? What does that mean? Is it truly uh, insecurity? And is, is well, that I a road or a path that we can go down, you know? I, I think insecurity may be the beginning of it, but I think that if you are insecure and you're particularly able to project that insecurity, you can actually trigger fear in other people that comes from a lack of awareness. Maybe it's ignorance, but they may not be up to speed on whatever subject is being talked about. Yeah. Like, for instance, lots of people who are who who have been fed this idea of uh, of of the government being the enemy for 50 years and that this has penetrated to such a point that they can actually sit at home and think well maybe those kids didn't get shot and 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 then you have the opportunity for somebody like Alex Jones to come Alex Jones to come in and say well that you, you know you're right and then 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 set fire to that yeah i mean it's but it's making me think you know i mean cuz i think um it would be interesting to see somebody interview those kind of people, especially someone like him that has so much prominence, who is actually can actually be perceived as rational. You know, it's almost like we don't have, like who do we have? Because I was thinking like, what if you know? Because Megyn Kelly is too. I saw her interview with Putin too, and you know, he said, "Oh, you know, well, weren't you interfering our, in our elections?" And Putin says, "No, no, not at all." And then she kind of tried to follow up, but she basically let it go. You know, so so, mm -hmm. but who? And so then I was thinking. Who would be, you know, do we have, we don't have any Walter Cronkites or like, or even, um, exactly. you know, McNeil, Lehrer, or, you know, maybe Judy Woodruff, <laughs> you know, like what if Judy Woodruff interviewed Alex Jones, you know, or somebody that, because it seems like what we need and, and what it, this connects with what we were talking about before in terms of 
trying to get through across the barriers of, of difference, you know, is we need some kind of scholarship or somebody that says, all right, what are the facts? You know, let's look at the facts and the fact that there aren't any facts. But those people are so well trained in being able to demolish the person that's asking him the question. question I don't quite know if it's about being well trained about demolishing the question. I think, to your point, it really is about thorough follow-up mm -hmm. and being dogged in that follow-up, that we that we don't have those kinds of journalists, those kinds of writers, those kind of moderators who are really saying, but really. Yeah, actually, so maybe it's being more, it's being well prepared, you know, right. and so that you can't have the Wikipedia version or the Cliff Correct. Notes version right. of the story. <laughs> you have to know all the facts. And if you know all the facts, then you can follow up. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, you have to say, ooh, I'm not really sure about that. So, so Bob, Dylan, Bob Dylan, not the right choice. Well, I'm glad we're having the, that kind of conversation. The conversation we're having now is the one that I would like to hear people have, which is that it's really about the quality of the interview. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think back to that whole issue of blind spots. I, when I, I hear a lot of people saying that this just shouldn't happen at all. And, and I think, well, that's because you, yeah, you don't want to turn on your TV and see this guy. And I get that, mm -hmm. you know. But any more than somebody who regularly goes to the public theater but happens to have voted for Trump wants to see Donald right. Trump die on stage. But sometimes this is part of ingesting everything that amounts to democratic discourse, you do have to watch something or somebody that you don't like and you have to see them say things that you find objectionable and you hope that the journalist who's on hand, back to James's idea of the moderated conversation, will do the things that you want them to do. You know, we'll ask those questions. Colin, there's yeah. another job for you. Well, I don't think Megyn Kelly's incapable of doing that. I saw her do it with Karl Rove one election night. I saw her do it with Newt Gingrich. I've seen her. Yes, yeah. and to your point, those people are within her universe. And right. to Irene's yes, point, those are people key. that yeah. she knows backstories on. I mean, she knows the facts right. behind them, so right. she feels confident hmm. in those follow-up questions because she's she's learned them you know through whatever means <laughs> all right we have to switch topics one more time if i interrupted either one of the women so far today uh, i'm going to be hysterical uh, okay so uh just kidding <laughs> we, well we have a choice it's either jeff bezos acquiring whole foods which i don't know that's like a pig in a python we need to digest that maybe and it, <laughs> it just you know i'm sure it'll be very digestible can i just say one thing about that because i don't think we're going to talk about it uh -huh. yeah. but i just one thing i found out just before we go on the air do you know that amazon had this thing where they where they give out free bananas not merely to everybody who works for them, but for anybody who's in the neighborhood of their enormous Seattle. They have these banana stands where you just ah. go and get a banana. That's right. Um, and it's actually screwed up the economy around there. There are like yogurt stands that can't sell banana toppings anymore because people can just go get a free banana from Amazon. Well, I'll be living. Um, I live yeah. near a future Amazon fulfillment center. Right. And I hope that they'll be giving away free bananas. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, <laughs> if you walk through downtown Seattle, it seems like it's that Amazon has completely taken over mm -hmm. with this massive spaceship. Of, of a building I mean, I, surrounded by bananas. Well, we just we have a few seconds bananas? here to do. Uh, they did, but they wanted to do something healthy, and they they thought and about oranges, and then they decided bananas. <laughs> I know way too much about this. Anyway, uh, that's not what we're going to talk about. We uh, small window here. Maybe this deserves a longer conversation. I think maybe we should start with a clip. This is, in fact, uh, the uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, um, hearing of the Senate Intelligence Committee on Tuesday. Uh, you're going to hear uh, Kamala Harris, who's a senator from uh, California. You're going to hear Jeff Sessions. And then you'll hear two voices break in. Uh, I believe one of them uh, will be um, that of John McCain. And I think you'll also hear Senator Burr, who's the, um, the chairman of that committee. Here we go. 
Sir, uh, I'm not asking about the principal. I'm asking when well, you, you would be asked the these question. questions and you would rely on that policy, Chairman, did you yeah. not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been asked should be allowed to answer the question. Senators will allow the chair <laughs> to control the hearing. Senator Harris, let him answer. Please, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Of the president. I have asked. And that's the uh, situation this we're in. For a yes or no, did you ask? So your the staff answer is yes. I consulted. Senator, did you ask your uh, staff to see the policy? Expired. <laughs> Apparently Senator not. Cornyn. Are you willing or are you not willing to give him the authority to be fully independent of your ability, statutorily and legally, to fire him? He is. He has the yes or no, sir. He, he has the full independence that is authorized by those regulations. And Are Senator, you willing said, to do as has been the, done? With the senator suspend, the chair is going to exercise its right to allow the witnesses to answer the question, and the committee is on notice to provide the witnesses the courtesy, which has not been extended all the way across, ex extend the courtesy for questions to get answered. Mr. Chairman, respectfully, Mr. Rosenstein, I would point out you, that this witness has joked with the, as we all have, the his ability to filibuster. So we actually hear both both hearings. That was the Rosenstein hearing uh, in the second clip there. So I just wanted to sort of say one obvious thing just to set the stage. Uh, in all of these hearings, senators have uh, a closely demarcated amount of time. And one of the things they don't want the witnesses to do is give incredibly long answers, which uh, would amount to a filibuster, would run out the clock so they can't. So all, particularly all of the Democratic senators who have a slightly more adversarial role in these hearings, were interrupting and cutting down the size of Sessions, I can't Sessions' answers, uh, and Rosenstein's as well. Um, it did seem, uh, uh, Tanisha, I think I'll let you lead this one off, as though Kamala Harris was being interrupted in a way that no one else was. Well, she was not given any opportunity to follow up, clearly, in this situation. Uh, I think, you know, she's in a, I, I, I teasingly said in our email exchange that she, this is a uh, senator who doesn't know her place, um, and that the, uh, folks around her are doing everything they can to remind her of what her place is um, and that perhaps it is not in uh, the office of the Senate. Well, so, uh, you know, she's, she's got a lot that she's, she's trying to make happen um, as that particular person in that role, um, not to mention being a Democrat and trying to get Jeff Sessions to answer a question uh, concisely and truthfully. Yeah. I mean, but, when I watch it, I was yelling at all the, the men, too, like, you know, shut him up. Go on to the next question. You know, because they did. Mm -hmm. But I think that to just to back up your your point, um, Tanisha, uh, is the uh, is what the way that, um, Burr said. Please have the courtesy. You know, mm -hmm. and just the way he said courtesy, as though you're not being courteous, you're not being a good a good girl, you're not being polite like you're supposed to be, which is which is an absurd thing to to say to a senator. Um, and it just every every woman listening knew knew exactly what that meant. Mm -hmm. I, I I think this is a textbook example of the intellectual integrity I'm talking about in having a conversation. Kamala Harris was the one person, the single person on that committee who'd done her homework mm -hmm. and who knew her stuff and who was asking cogent questions and was dogged in her persistence in getting an elusive, evasive witness to actually respond and. The people who interrupted uh, were people who regularly have to have aides come up behind them and explain stuff to them because they don't understand them. 
Orrin Hatch is another one who, who totally lost it on one of his committee hearings. And then an aide comes and explains in his ear what's going on. Kamala Harris actually engaged with the subject at hand, an incredibly important subject, and she knew her stuff and she has the intellect to, able, to be able to parse the response. And that is so rare that it caused enormous and annoyance in raging mm-hmm. amongst <laughs> these the, the, the you know white males again who are like not willing to accept that a woman for a start and a woman of color who might actually have something to add to the conversation they clearly reacted in that way i think it's an absolute object lesson in well, that I, dynamic I would, I would love to allow everyone to persist uh, <laughs> but we have to take a break instead Say impossible as he hands you a bone. And something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I'm going to bundle them together in a credit default swap. Today's show was produced by Gaius Flavius Pentus and me, Kyone Wolfus. Amanda Fish appears on Law and Order, Roman Assassination Unit. The part of Bill Curry was played by Joan Baez. We'll be back on Monday with analysis of the weekend's news. And now, back to Colin. All right, we like to recommend things for you, things that will make you enjoy your weekend even more. So let's try to do that. Uh, let's start with you, Irene Bafoulis. Okay. Um, <clears throat> first, I'm reading a, a book uh, by Roxane Gay that's out now, right now. It's really popular. It just came out. It's called Hunger, um, and a memoir, a memoir of my my in parentheses body. Uh, and she and I think it's a great it's a she's a wonderful writer, uh, very accessible uh, and also sort of steeped in feminist ideas. She talks about her body. She's like, extremely overweight. She talks about what that's like and why she got that way. But she tells it and there's a lot of seriousness in it. But she tells it in a very, very readable. It's almost like a beach read book. Uh, and any anyone who's had any um, who has experienced themselves as a body in the world could relate to it, I think. Hunger by Roxane Gay. And also, tomorrow I'm going to ride my bike over to Elizabeth Park because there's going to be a, something called a great get-together uh, in solidarity with the um, movements in, 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 the, in the UK commemorating Joe Cox's murder. And it's going to be sort of um, a picnic, uh, kid-friendly, organizing tables, speeches, music uh, at Elizabeth Park from 4 to 8 tomorrow. Oh. Uh, James, what have you got? Um, I just wanted to uh, give some recognition to a wonderful group in Mansfield called Mansfield uh, Neighborhood Preservation, um, who are a group of people who have been working really hard to stem an incredible tide of more than 400 single-family homes in Mansfield that have been bought by absentee landlords and are basically being turned into dorms. And um, it's uh, been very uh, a great deal of pressure in the neighborhoods. And uh, so this group, Mansfield Neighborhood uh, preservation has really been uh, getting people aware of it. It's a really very important issue. The other thing, uh, at Cine Studio, we're showing a wonderful film, a documentary about uh, storyboard artists, visual artists, uh, Harold and Lillian, it's called, Harold and Lillian Michelson. And 
They are a charming couple, but one of the fascinating things is that you learn something about where all the images you see come from, including advertising images for films and the content of films. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating sort of dissection of what lies behind uh, decades of films from Hollywood. Tanisha Dugan. Um, I'm going to endorse a couple things. Um, first and foremost, although it needs no endorsement, it is uh, quite popular on its own, is Small State Great Beer launched their tickets for this September today. Um, and they're doing two sessions, a family-friendly session, which I know sounds weird, but for those of you who are parents, being able to go and day drink with your kids in a safe place is actually a great thing. <laughs> so there's an <laughs> afternoon session that starts at 1, and then a night session for those of you who don't have kids and can party it up in the evening. So Small State Great Beer, tickets went on sale today. Go check those out. And this is located where? Uh, Constitution Plaza where? is where they will uh, kick off and host the beer and food truck and amazing musical acts uh, in September. Get your tickets now while they're cheap. Okay. Um, the other thing is um, Lyman Orchards. Tomorrow's a strawberry festival. We were talking about strawberries. It's a great time. You'll see me and my kiddos out there digging in the dirt, essentially. Uh, and then finally, if you are the kind of person who loves theater and loves that it is uh, a, an opportunity to have discourse, I invite you to see Fade at TheaterWorks. Runs till the 30th. I moderate talkbacks on Tuesday if you want to come and hang out with me on a Tuesday and talk some more about what it means to be uh, civically involved through art. Um, Fade, TheaterWorks, TheaterWorksHartford.org. All right, I'm going to... Um... <laughs> I'm going to reverse endorse. It's a movie that just was uh, put into somewhat wide release this uh, weekend called The Exception. Uh, it uh, stars incredible actors, Christopher Plummer and Janet McTeer and Eddie Marsan, and they're all wonderful, and it's just a terrible movie. It's really just like an offensively bad movie that has just, and I'm not even, I'm scratching the surface of how many really great actors are involved. And Plummer plays uh, the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and Eddie Marsan plays Himmler, and it is just an abomination, and you probably shouldn't go see it. Uh, and then uh, we talked about this. We talked with the author on Monday, but I really didn't get a chance to fully endorse this. Uh, the book American War by Omar, Omar el Akkad. It takes place uh, in, in an American future where the country is split apart, mainly over fossil fuel. Uh, and it, But it's also sort of about civil war, about how ter terrorists get made, but it's all set in the environment of America as a failed state. I want to particularly recommend the audio version, Dion Graham, uh, is uh, somebody with a very elastic and sonorous voice who's reading it. Well, audiobooks are so dependent on having really great readers. He's really good at this. Thanks very much to uh, my panel, also very good at this. Uh, that would be Irene Papoulis, Tanisha Dugan, and James Hanley. We'll be back on Monday. Yeah, 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 yeah.